0: This morning, since we finished the letters of 1st through 3rd John, we're going to start a new series, but it's a series that's going to end up bringing us right back to where we've been. The bulk of this new series is going to be a series on Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Lord willing, that's where we're going to spend most of our time, but In the process of doing this exposition on the letter to the Ephesians, it, it struck me some time ago that of all the churches in the New Testament, there are really none that we know as much about as we do the church at Ephesus. The New Testament records information about that church from its founding in Acts all the way through Revelation Uh, and its potential demise. We read in Acts 18, the Apostle Paul brought the gospel to Ephesus. It's in Ephesus that Apollos came teaching from the Old Testament, and a couple named Aquila and Priscilla brought him into their home and Uh, corrected his thinking about jesus in acts 19 paul spends three years in ephesus renting out a lecture hall and and preaching daily so that the gospel spreads throughout asia minor it's during that time that many of the ephesians believed and abandoned their occultic practices they they collected their you know magic books and burned them at great personal expense it's In Ephesus, where there is a um, silversmith guild that's led by a man named Demetrius who starts a riot with the hopes of murdering Paul. They were losing money as people started believing in Jesus and stopped buying the little statues of Diana and the little statues of the, the temple there. In Acts 20, on his final trip, to Jerusalem, Paul again stops at the church at Ephesus and speaks to the the pastors of the church there and wishes them a tearful goodbye. Later on, he writes that letter, the Book of Ephesians, encouraging the truth, er, encouraging the church in truth, showing how they have this multicultural assembly of Jews and Gentiles and Greek speakers and Hebrew speakers and how all of their backgrounds. Um, that they're now one in Christ who's broken down Paul says the wall of separation between them so that they're no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens then after the letter of Ephesians first and second Timothy is written by Paul to his young friend Timothy who he left in Ephesus in order to lead the church there and it's Evident late in life that the Apostle John comes and ministers in Ephesus so that 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John have a connection to this city as well. He was likely in Ephesus as he writes letters to uh, other churches and people who were nearby. And then in that vision in Revelation, Christ sends his own direct message to this church at Ephesus in Revelation, commanding them... He commends them for their doctrinal and moral integrity, but but condemns them for having lost their first love. So if you are familiar with the New Testament at all, then Ephesus is probably the church that you are going to be the most familiar with. We should know it as well as we know any other church. And so this series is going to predominantly focus on the letter to the Ephesians, but we're going to spend probably a few weeks leading into that study, and then more than a few weeks coming out of that study on the other end. So I recognize this is going to take us to some territory that we've traveled before, but I trust it'll be a worthwhile study as we trace the events and themes and the teaching revolving around the church. The very first reference to Ephesus Begins here in Acts 18, verses 19 through 21. And while it doesn't say a lot, it does give us a good opportunity to get started where the scriptures itself get started. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey. Earlier in the chapter, he found himself in Corinth where he met with two fellow tent makers, a married couple named Aquila and Priscilla. It was very uh, common for Paul to encounter a great deal of opposition and he met that opposition in Corinth but he stayed the course he ultimately uh in verse 18 it tells us he remained in Corinth a good while before taking leave of the church there but he took Priscilla and Aquila with him when he left Corinth let me ask a question real quick I'm hearing myself echo quite a bit am I a little loud Dan could you turn me down just a bit thank you Acts 18, starting at verse 19, says that he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they desired him to tarry longer with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that comes in Jerusalem. But I will return again to you if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. What I'd like to do before diving into these verses and really more at the end of chapter 18 is is just ask you to engage your sanctified imagination for a moment. And I'm going to do my best to describe what Paul would have seen when he arrived at Ephesus for the first time. Getting from Corinth to Ephesus was not it 's not like getting from East Peoria to Washington. Corinth and Ephesus are uh, on entirely different land masses. If you have one of those maps of paul 's missionary journeys, specifically his second missionary journey, in his first missionary journey with Barnabas, it took him to many places on the land mass that we now call Asia Minor. This second missionary journey that he 's on now took him away from Asia Minor across the Aegean Sea. Corinth is located where in what we generally call Greece now while Ephesus is to the west or to the east that's on the western edge of of modern day Turkey. And so to get from Corinth to Ephesus, Paul would have arrived by ship into any one of the harbors on the west side of the city. If you can picture coming ashore to this city that's located at the edge of the sea along this this river valley. The river feeding into the Aegean Sea was called the Caester River. And that river caused major silting issues uh, in the harbors around Ephesus. They invented some pretty ingenious uh, feats of engineering in order to dredge the silt out of the harbors. And so now... The ruins of Ephesus are actually located today five miles inland and not because the city moved but because the silting took the the edge of the sea far outward. So as Paul arrives in the city he would have come to one of those harbors. The decades leading up to Paul's arrival were sort of the heyday of Ephesian success. The city had a time of unprecedented prosperity as as Rome officially recognized uh, Ephesus to be the first and greatest metropolis of Asia was the title that was given to it the city was given authority in order to self-rule the citizens would meet and discuss and decide most of their own issues the beauty and wealth of Ephesus was so well regarded that with with Less than 100 years before Paul's visit, the residents of Ephesus had famously welcomed Mark Antony of Rome and Cleopatra of Egypt to their shores. So immediately as after getting off the ship, travelers... The harbor would be looking down this main thoroughfare that goes through the city. And the city probably had about 250,000 regular residents and many more frequent visitors. And this main city street was called the Arcadian Way. The streets of Ephesus were paved. Many of them paved with stone, but the very nicest ones were paved with marble. It was a, a testament to the city's wealth. But that wealth was often made through wicked means. The the marble streets actually served as a kind of uh, advertisement. Archaeologists have discovered patterns of footprints carved into the the paving of the streets so that a man just had to put his foot into the footprints on the stone in order to reach the closest brothel. New aqueducts carried water to easily accessible locations within the city. Either side of that main thoroughfare, the Arcadian Way, there would have been fine houses. If you could have gone inside the nicest ones, they would have had mosaic tile floors, marble walls. Paul would have passed many retail shops, a library, several small theaters. Residents of Ephesus, it is clear, loved these places called gymnasium and an agora. An agora was a public square for meeting, or it was used as a place of commerce, like a large open market. Many agoras had been expanded before Paul's arrival. Meanwhile, gymnasiums aren't probably exactly what you imagine, A gymnasium was a place for education or entertainment and exercise. There were at least six major gymnasiums have been discovered in the ruins of ancient Ephesus. And public bathhouses were often, not always, but often attached to a gymnasium. And I don't know how you picture a public bathhouse, but I loved the description in the the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary which shows that they, they typically included a, a large swimming pool in addition to several bathing pools. And the reason they had several bathing pools is you could opt for a caldarium, which is warm water, a tepidarium, which was mild water, or a frigidarium, which was cold water. And these public bathhouses would, have, would include uh, uh, changing rooms and lockers and, and separate rooms for anointing oils and perfumes. All of those are the more public places in Ephesus. There were private theaters and and lecture halls abounded throughout the city. Sometimes those were owned by teachers who would charge students to come and hear lectures and then in the off hours would rent out their lecture hall to guest speakers. We're going to see later on, Paul actually rents out the lecture hall of a man named Tyranus in order to give the church at Ephesus a place to meet and worship. Now, if you're trying to visualize this city, and I hope you are, we're starting at the harbor on the west side of town, and there is this large main street that goes all the way through the city, the Arcadian Way, to the east side of the city. But there's two more prominent features that'll help you get a grasp of Ephesus. Facing down that main street from west to east, you would see this, there was a large hill looming in the background. So if I'm at the harbor and I'm looking down this the main city road, behind that road there's a large hill a small mountain in the background now off to the the west this direction for me you're going to have to flip it around in your head in in the distance well outside the city but nearby there was a, a large building the largest building in Ephesus it was called the Artemisian which is the temple to Artemis to the Greeks she was known as Artemis. To the Romans, she was known as Diana. To both, she was the make-believe. She was the goddess of the moon and the wilderness and hunting. Ephesus had other temples to other pagan gods like Hestia or Zeus, but nothing compared to this massive temple to Artemis or Diana. She was revered as Artemis of the Ephesians or Diana of the Ephesians. We're going to see it, this riot. The whole city screams for hours at a time. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. You may have heard of a, of a different temple called the Parthenon, which is located in Athens. Well, the Artemisian was four times that large. It is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so underneath this veneer of wealth, the dark hearts of the Ephesians laid hidden, but they were open to the Apostle Paul. He sees what's going on. Not only were the residents of Ephesus dedicated to their own pagan goddess, they were also steeped in superstition and occultic practices. At this point in history, almost any written document that carried a magic spell or a curse or a, a you know some magic thing of protection was called an Ephesian letter. And in Acts nineteen, Paul's going to face down that superstitious wish, witchcraft of Ephesus, and then face the city's wrath. It's the art guild that. He, rises up in a riot when when Paul starts claiming about Artemis that those gods that you make with your hands are no gods at all. Now, as we reach the end of the Arcadian Way, that main thoroughfare, the stone pavement turns to marble, and we find ourselves at the base of that large hill, that little mountain on the east side of the city, and carved into that hillside is a massive amphitheater it's it's cut into the stone of the mountain and it's like this half circle facing open to the main part of the city it is essentially stadium seating able to fit about 25,000 people the apostle paul writes to the church at corinth later saying in first corinthians 15 32 you know i fought wild beasts at Ephesus now there's debate whether he meant that literally or symbolically but if he meant it literally it almost surely happened at that public stadium what we know for certain is later in Acts 19 that riot's going to erupt and it's going to end with the vast majority of the city flooding into that amphitheater and the disciples physically restraining the apostle Paul and keeping him from going in as well. But we're not there yet. Right now, Paul's just arrived. As Paul arrived in Ephesus, he brought the gospel with him. He brought gospel workers with him. But this is just sort of a quick passing visit at first. Though he brought Aquila and Priscilla with him to Ephesus, verse 19 tells us he left them there right and he went in briefly into the synagogue of the Jews to reason with them the word for reason there is the greek word dialogia which is you know dialogue to have a conversation with them speaking and listening and convince them about jesus and though the gospel work there wasn't complete certainly paul had not evangelized the city at this time, Paul felt he had to return to Jerusalem, but he left with that promise that I will return again to you, if God wills, before he leaves Ephesus. And so he's going to return in chapter 19. The next chapter, Paul returns, but but Luke tells the story of what happens in Ephesus while Paul's gone. So in that interim between his first brief stay... Which, which may have been just a few days, and his returning in Acts 19, Luke tells us what happens here. In verse 22 and 23, he essentially tells us Paul leaves, returns to Jerusalem, and, uh, and then to the church at Antioch, which had sent him out. And he begins slowly retracing the steps of his missionary journey. But in the meantime, in Ephesus, look at verse 24. And a certain Jew named Apollos born in Alexandria, an eloquent man man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly." And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. Apollos is certainly a name we're going to know from later in the New Testament, but before getting to know about him as an individual, Can I just take a moment to point out to you that there is this remarkable work of God's providence that's happening here. Apollos, it says, is from Alexandria. You know where Alexandria is? Alexandria is in Egypt. And so this man lived in a colony of Jews down in North Africa. We're in Ephesus. We're on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea in Asia Minor. God is simply not limited by geography. He is omnipresent. He is in all places and he is all wise in all places. In fact, if you can remember from the study of Acts, the Apostle Paul pretty clearly wanted to come to Ephesus well before Acts chapter 18. Back in Acts 16 verse 6, it tells us that Paul intended that he wanted To preach in Asia, almost assuredly that's describing Ephesus, which is the main city of Asia. However, in Acts 16.6, it says, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, and they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. The Holy Spirit didn't allow Paul to come to Ephesus and preach throughout all Asia. Instead, he ends up being led by the Spirit over the Aegean Sea to the city of Thessalonica. And when Paul gets there, when he he arrives in uh, Philippi, down by the uh, river, there are women who are worshiping and there's a woman named Lydia from Thyatira, which is a city very close to Ephesus, a city in Asia. You know, the early record of Ephesus is a study in God's providence. God didn't need Paul in Ephesus at that moment. God didn't need Paul to be in Asia in order to preach the gospel to the people of Asia. God could take Paul over the Aegean Sea and land him over there where there's a woman from Asia waiting to hear the gospel. Meanwhile, when Paul finally does get to Ephesus, God doesn't need him to stay there. God's going to use this married couple named Aquila and Priscilla to minister in Ephesus to a man from Africa while Paul is off in Jerusalem. Now, if all that geography is a little confusing, let me sum it up like this. God's thinking is above our thinking. In his providence, he's going to work things out for our good and for his glory. He's going to do it perfectly, and he's going to do it without consulting us first. God knows everything. You and I don't. It's one of the compelling lessons in this text. Paul briefly reasons with the Jews in the synagogue of Ephesus before leaving town. And then Apollos arrives. And if there's anybody who could use some some help from the Apostle Paul to learn more, it's this man, Apollos. And yet, without Paul there, God uses Aquila and Priscilla in order to proclaim the truth to Apollos. In verse 24 and 25, Right, It describes Apollos being born at Alexandria. An eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures came to Ephesus. And this man was instructed in the way of the Lord and fervent in the spirit. And he spoke and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. I want you to picture this. Apollos is a wise man. He is a studied theologian. He is apparently a brilliant speaker. But he needs straightened out on a couple of things. Can you imagine, let's say that we have a a Bible conference here and uh, coming to our Bible conference to speak is a man who has been in the ministry for a long time. He is a well-regarded speaker. He's smart and he's studied and he's dynamic. But you hear him and you can detect there's something a little bit off. Can you imagine a couple in our church asking that preacher home just for the purpose of saying, hey, We'd really like to talk to you about that message from last night. We're not sure you quite grasp everything there. Well, that's what Aquila and Priscilla do after Apollos teaches in the synagogue. Just to humbly suggest a couple of principles from this experience of Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla. First off, no matter how much you know, there's plenty you don't know. We each need to have a teachable spirit like Apollos had. Second, no matter how little you think you know, you're responsible for declaring what you do know. If you grasp something clearly taught in scripture, if it's clearly taught in scripture, pass it on. Even if it's to a preacher, there is no man who is too great to learn. And in fact, if there's some man who is too great to listen to you, he is not that great of a man at all. Apollos had probably formal training in public speaking. He's from Alexandria. It's the very place where the Hebrew Old Testament got translated into Greek and taught. He is mighty in the scriptures, which of course that description is the Old Testament at this point. He is steeped in Old Testament teaching. And this is more than just raw knowledge, but an ability to approach the scriptures with wisdom and discernment. Apollos Taught what he learned, and there's nothing that he taught that he didn't learn himself first. He either learned directly from reading it in Scripture, or he learned it as he was taught by others from Scripture. If you crave biblical knowledge, you'll find that there is always more for you to learn and more for you to know, more glorious truths of God's grace for you to absorb. When you hear a guy brag that, you know, <laughs> I've been preaching for 30 years and I haven't changed my mind about anything, that ought to give you pause because what does this book do except challenge our preconceived notions about righteousness and truth and, and cause us to learn more? There's, there's never a point where we're not learning and growing. For all that Apollos had learned, there was a deficiency in his knowledge, though. Luke explains it at the end of verse 25. He is an eloquent speaker. He's learned in the scripture. He is fervent in the spirit and knew only the baptism of John. That is, Apollos knew the Old Testament. And in addition to the Old Testament, he'd also somehow learned the teaching of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of the Messiah. You know, preparing the way for the Messiah. The Old Testament promised the Messiah. But Apollos doesn't know Jesus. Now, this does not mean that Apollos was a lost man. And I want you to follow me here. Because we've got this odd moment in time. This, this strange moment in history. The Old Testament saints were saved by faith in the Messiah who would come. They were saved as a result of trusting the promise of God that a savior was coming they looked forward to the fulfillment of God's promise new testament saints are saved by faith in the messiah who has come we trust God's promise that the messiah has come we look back on the fulfillment of those promises Apollos lives in this time where those two ideas meet Right? The, the basis of his knowledge is Old Testament knowledge. His conviction that God would send the Messiah Savior. His embracing John's message of repentance and, and faith. So I would argue Apollos is a saved man, especially as, as Luke describes him as being fervent in the spirit. But Apollos came to the synagogue at Ephesus, maybe missing Paul by just a couple of weeks, and when he is given the opportunity to speak at the synagogue he preached boldly what he knew just on fire about the messiah i picture apollos getting into the synagogue and preaching look the the kingdom of heaven is at hand. look how the psalms teach the messiah is coming look how isaiah teaches the messiah is coming look how all of the old testament the message is clear the messiah is coming and not too long ago there was this new prophet out in the wilderness of judea and yeah he wore funny clothes and ate some weird stuff, but his message was clear. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah is coming. And Aquila and Priscilla are there in the synagogue looking at each other from across the room. Don't don't picture them sitting together in pews like we have. It was very common for the Jews to separate into men and women on opposite sides. And I think that adds to the visual. Apollos is preaching and they're on opposite sides of the room just eyeballing each other like... We're we're waiting for the big finale. We're waiting for the big finish, right? Here's this message. Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. That's it. And they can't hardly wait to invite him for a meal and bring him into their house and say, oh, our, our dear new friend, Messiah has come. Messiah has come in the person of Jesus Christ, God's son. And he is so much better than everything you've been expecting. And his willingness to hear them is this colossal act of humility on, on his part. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you know, if our, if our illustration from earlier happened, we have a Bible conference and you invite a, a preacher over to your house to straighten him out, it might not go well. In fact, if you decide to do that with me, just you have to warn me ahead of time that you're having me over to straighten me out and also let me know what's for dinner first but here's this man who has a has been raised in this esteemed learning center of Alexandria he's absorbed God's word he teaches it with with passion and accuracy he travels through Asia Minor and as he speaks in synagogue he's no doubt been told you know at the back door oh I really appreciated that I enjoyed the message today And the next thing you know, a tent maker of all things and his wife invite him into their home and both together start politely instructing him that, well, you don't know everything that you think you know. And yet he doesn't reject them or tell them off. He has this humble teachability because a true Teacher of God's word is a student of God's word and they crave more biblical knowledge. The text is filled with that idea. The synagogue at Ephesus pleaded with Paul to learn more. Apollos came and he learned more. The churches in Galatia and Phrygia in verse 23, Paul stops there because they needed to learn more. You and I need to learn more. And the text shows us how to learn more in verse 24. Or Sorry, verse 26 He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom Aquila and Priscilla had heard. They took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. I love that word expounded, it simply means to explain or to expose. They engaged in biblical exposition with Apollos, showing him the way of God more perfectly, more completely that is more carefully, more accurately. They took him into their home and showed him what they thought he needed to know. And the result of that was a blessing in verses 27 and 28. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him who, when he was come, helped them much which had believed through grace. For he Mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Messiah. Jesus was Christ. Now, for the purpose of our series on Ephesians, that tells us a little something about Paul's first visit. It was a success. There are brothers, it describes in verse 27, that write this commendation letter to to uh for apollos as he travels right then and, and doing this kind of letter is traditionally a thing that a church does i'm convinced that little visit of paul saw a new testament church started in ephesus and it's that church that's going to he's going to return to in chapter 19 and again in chapter 20 and write a letter to later the purpose of that church is to declare the glory and gospel of Jesus Christ. And they do it. Aquila and Priscilla taking Apollos aside and teaching him was like them teaching him when he already knew so much about the Old Testament was like taking one of those little wind-up toys you had as a kid and just revving it up and letting it go, man. And, and off he goes. And you know, he's teaching even more passionately and scripturally than he had before. Apollos leaves Ephesus and he goes to the church at Corinth. We know this because Corinth is in that region that's being described that he goes to. And God's plan for his church is that he, he's going to bless a church that serves him faithfully. Paul's later going to write to that church in 1 Corinthians 3 and Paul calls himself and Apollos servants by whom you believed even as the Lord gave to every man. I planted, Apollos watered, God made it grow. It's so Lord willing next time we'll pick up this study about Ephesus in chapter 19 because Paul's going to return and when he returns In chapter 19, he encounters some men who only knew what John the Baptist had been teaching. And he encounters some of those uh, superstitious occultic practices. And he also challenges that silversmith guild that there's anything that you're making with your hands. That is not God. God's the one who made us.